0: Whenever two groups of people meet, they can't help but exchange ideas, practices, and ways of thinking about life. Often these exchanges blur the lines of tradition, and they encourage us to explore new ways of seeing ourselves. In the 20th century, just such an exchange of ideas occurred, leading to a new or perhaps re-emphasized contemplative practice within Jewish synagogues. This is Logosish. Today, we explore the encounter between Judaism and Buddhism in the United States and the development of Jewish meditation. Hey guys, welcome back to Logo Sish. This is John here for another great episode. I am joined by Garrett and Brian today, and of course, our guest, Emily Cigalow. We'll talk to her a little bit in a minute, but first off, Brian and Garrett, how are you guys doing today? Are you holding up okay?
1: I'm doing great. just had an interesting experience watching the Friends reunion and I had all the feels, all the feels.
2: Very nice. I've only watched a little bit of Friends, so I can only imagine what it would be like seeing the reunion, but I can, only, it would probably be similar for me if I watched like the West Wing reunion, but everything is all good here in North Carolina.
0: How are you? Oh, I'm good. I spent most of this morning trying to wrangle a cat that did not want to take its medicine. Mary has just persisted with this problem that she's had. And so she's just been getting actually a little better at at taking medicine, but I'm still bleeding. And it's still a thing where we have to very systematically trap her in the corner of the house. We have to close all the doors. We have to make sure there's no furniture she can crawl under. We have to, you know, chase her into the central hallway and make sure she's trapped in a corner. And then only then, then and only then, can you get her to take this medicine. And instantly afterwards, it seems like she feels better. And, and I really wish she would somehow deep in her little cat brain, make that connection but it just doesn't seem to be happening. So hopefully she will be over this soon because we've been talking about this for s- several months now in various installments on this podcast. So this has been Cat Talk. Thank you for listening.
1: I was about to say, Mary, Mary's illness might be our most frequently visited topic.
2: I mean, apart from your glorious mustache, Brian. Glorious. I think pet ailments are our the that's where we really bring in our,
0: our pace. We should probably consider marketing a beard oil or a mustache oil for people who don't grow mustaches. I mean, it's all we talk about. Anyway, we really need to spin off a podcast that where we just talk about pets and animals. I feel like this would create a solid, solid base for viewership to grow our podcast company. Anyways, We are not here to talk about pets today. We are here to talk to Emily Sigalow, author of American Jubu, Jews, Buddhists, and Religious Change. Emily, how are you doing today?
3: I'm doing great. Thanks, John, for having me today. And thanks, Brian and Garrett, for joining us and having for this collective conversation. Really looking forward to it.
0: I I am so excited about this, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started?
3: Sure. I'll start in. Uh, I could go way back, but I'm going to actually just start in 2015. I received my PhD from Brandeis University in sociology and contemporary Jewish studies. So I'm a by by training, I'm a sociologist who focuses on Amer- the American Jewish community, American Jewish communal life. And after I received my PhD, I did various. Uh, I held a couple of different postdoc postdoctoral positions, and uh, some visiting professorships. But in 2018, made a transition and moved into working in the Jewish communal world. And I work at the UJA Federation of New York and run the research and evaluation department there. And it's been good. And I'm really happy to be here and to be talking about this book.
0: Well, it's a really fascinating topic. And so in the book, you talk about these various intersections between american judaism and the birth of buddhism in america and the the kind of cross sections of people who tend to move between one and the other so can you talk a little bit about the the general arc of that you know the figures who are involved and just give us a little bit of a historical sketch
3: absolutely so it's it's interesting because when I began this project, I, you know, I had heard about "Red Jew," the Jew and the Lotus, and had heard about, you know, ju and imagined that the story really began in the 1960s and the 1970s, in and around the counterculture of the the West Coast, and that was my original starting point for for my research. And at the time, one of the uh, directors on my dissertation committee said to me, "You know what? I think you should just look back a little earlier. Just make sure there wasn't something that was happening." Before the 1960s, and and I was like, you know, just in order to cross your T's dot your I's, and I thought, all right, fine, I'll take a, I'll take a quick poke around, see what we find. So I went to some of the Jewish historical archives and the archives of the Jewish newspapers, and kind of began to poke in some search terms, you know, Jews, Buddhists, Buddha, Jew, Torah, things like this, to see like what 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 came up and sure enough there were all these articles that were written about these encounters between Jews and Buddhists and, and Jews and Buddhists and Judaism and Buddhism really beginning in the late 1800s and i was I was really shocked i was like wow there there is this earlier story there was something that was going on way before i think any at least the, the the popular perception of this this encounter began so i began i started i started to go backwards to try to unearth that story and and try to do it justice so when i began that journey and then I put it all together and I looked at you know all this all these stories that I had that really kind of began about in 1875 and carried forward to the present day and then at least what became clear to me is that there really were four periods, there are four moments of this Jewish-Buddhist encounter and the the first one was from approximately 1875 to about 1923 is when I I dated it but it's a little bit fuzzy there because during World War I things were quiet anyways But there was this Jewish attraction to Buddhism. I'm not quite sure I would say it was an involvement in Buddhism because the engagement between Jews and Buddhists was was not practice. It wasn't people weren't um, going to Buddhist centers and doing meditation, but there was this intellectual and romantic almost fascination of Buddhism by American Jews. And the very first person to take on the Buddhist vow first non-Asian person to take on the Buddhist vows in America was this man named Charles Theodore Strauss, who was a German Jewish man who took this interest in Buddhism and found it to be the most ethical religion. And it it resonated with him philosophically. And he saw saw it at the time as as a scientific religion, unlike the Abrahamic religions. And there was this engagement then in this period that was very much focused on understanding the philosophy of Buddhism um, and attraction to Buddhist art and Buddhist writings and Buddhist teachings, and kind of the ethics of Buddhism. And that's kind of the first period. Then there's begins the second period, beginning in the mid 1920s, up until the end of World War II, when there was the, there were these, what I called solo American Jews, most of whom came from very wealthy backgrounds, who began to take an interest in Buddhism, because they were searching for meaning beyond what they could find in in the dollars that they had right these were many american jews who had who had everything but yet were feeling unfulfilled and Mm -hmm. so they began to look around and to think okay well i'm somebody who has everything and yet i'm not I don't feel like I have everything and they found in Buddhism this fulfillment and the search for meaning. I profile some of these some of these key figures Julius Goldwater, Sam Lewis, um, Richard Siegel in the book. And for the most part these earlier Jewish Americans they would study Buddhism with Asian teachers and in Asian Buddhist groups. There weren't Buddhist groups for were popular Buddhist groups for non-Asians at the time. And so they they were joining kind of these Asian groups and really finding a tremendous amount of meaning from, from being a part of them. And we're going to fast forward now to after, after World War II, this third period of engagement, which is the one I think that's more popular, popularly known, which really be this period of engagement began in and around the counterculture and a group of many... Jews and non-Jews, you know, went to the Bay Area in search of kind of anti-establishment community and and kind of hippie culture, we'll just say. And and many of them, in in kind of seeking that, began to practice in Buddhist centers, which at that time sort of really started, there began Asian teachers who were, took an interest in teaching kind of a, at that time was a primarily white, although it was just specifically kind of a non-Asian, broader audience. And, and these American Jews would go and they would sit in these centers and, and, be, and were trained from these teachers and then kind of rose up through the ranks and became popular leaders within the, within the movement and specifically within Zen, the Zen tradition. And I'm thinking about Mel Weitzman and Blanche Hartman, and then some of their students in the Zen tradition. And, you know, approximately at that same time, when there were this group of Jewish Americans who went to the Bay area in search of kind of countercultural experiments and, and that there was another group of Jewish Americans who went. To Asia in search of much the same, of you know, meaning, and in Asia, this group of Jewish Americans began studying with a number of Thai Buddhist and other South Asian Buddhist teachers. And that led Joe Goldstein and Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg and Jackie Schwartz all over there in Asia, studying with these uh, South Asian Buddhist teachers. And then they come back to the United States and began to start this movement for insight meditation and become kind of the key figures and leaders of that tradition in the States. Again, beginning in the kind of the 60s and the 70s. Finally, this last period of engagement that this really began in the 90s, 1990s, when it's, kind of, it's also this interesting story, when um, Buddhism became, for lack of a better word, more uh, secularized and medicalized. I, it's, I think that was globally, but specifically also in the American context, there was an effort among, I think, some Buddhist teachers and specifically among John Kabat-Zinn to, to think about, wow, I've learned so much from my Buddhist practices. I think that the whole general public has a lot to learn from this. And the University of Massachusetts really was a pioneer in this, and they created this MBSR, the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Clinics, which became this big movement to move mindfulness and meditation into, into the halls of medicine and, and, and to say this is a practice that reduces stress, it reduces anxiety, and it has therapeutic value, it should be, should be taught in hospitals, it should be taught to medical providers, it should be taught in schools. And in doing so and in popularizing it in that way, they also secularized it. They kind of, they didn't talk about meditation and mindfulness as as, as being Buddhist practices. They just talked about, they talked about them as being universal practices that were good for everybody and from which anyone could benefit. And as these Buddhist practices became American and secular, then they no longer seemed like they were associated with, with the Buddhist tradition. And that allowed for, for a number of American Jews beginning in the 1990s to begin practicing meditation and mindfulness, not because they saw themselves as practicing Buddhism, but because they saw themselves as practicing something that seemed to them to be very secular, therapeutic, medical. And so there was this Jewish interest in Buddhism, which also followed a larger American interest in Buddhism, or at least in Buddhist practices beginning in the 90s, because the the view at the time was that this was, these were viewed then, the view I think now too, that these were, these were, these were largely secular practices that anybody can benefit from. And as more Jews began to practice mindfulness and meditation, there became this movement to integrate Judaism and and med- meditation and mindfulness. And that gave rise to this movement for Jewish meditation, which is kind of this syncretic blending of the, of the two traditions that still exists and flourishes, and it's continuing to take shape and new shape today. I just gave you a lot, so maybe I should stop here.
0: No, that's perfect. That's really great. And that was, I love how you, I really appreciate that you broke it up into four... Segments like that. You know, it was a nice flow. And I think it's easy to go back and think about. And I really appreciate those long view historical assessments of things. It's very easy to forget that there's uh, usually a confluence of events, a flow of things that leads up to a particular phenomenon or event. So many times I feel like we kind of say, oh, well, this, the 60s just happened. Right. You know, they, they just happen. They just came out of the blue. All of a sudden there are a bunch of kids and they went nuts <laughs> or, or, you know, somebody tells the story like that, but it's easy to forget that there's, you know, a whole other set of social trends that go back 50, 60 years leading up to that particular moment and time. And, you know, I've been reading a little bit about different cultural luminaries in the, in the fifties recently and, and how they have influenced those sorts of things. So I appreciate your, your long view, historical assessment. You know, it's really interesting to me that the seekers that you describe seemed to be very focused on seeking out an experiential practice. Can you talk a little more about that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think that they're I'm gonna gently say this as a critique of American Judaism, offer this as some of these seekers critique of American Judaism, but I think it's probably, we could say this would be a critique of Abrahamic religions more generally. But I think that what drew many Jewish Americans and others to Buddhism at that time was that it was very practice based. There was this practice of sitting and meditating and you would do this practice and you would walk away and the participants would feel calmer, wiser, kinder, better. And within, at least the the stories that I heard was that within American Judaism, they found that there was nothing, there was nothing there that they could do within the tradition that made them feel like that. Judaism was for them, it was great for the holidays. It had wonderful satyrs. It was very communal. There was, you know, there could be family celebrations and it did that well. And Judaism did, you know, had a, like a historical legacy and feeling connected to that and did that for them. But in terms of actually helping ground them in some sort of practice-based model like something they could do on a daily basis to feel like better people and to build them into who they wanted to do, they felt like that wasn't that wasn't anchored in Judaism. There was nothing there for them. And that's what they were able to find in Buddhism. They found that through this practice, they were able to do something for themselves to make themselves feel better, be better, and to be more fulfilled. So my respondents, everyone who I spoke to were, were Jewish, or of Jewish background, but I would imagine actually, if if I had interviewed people who were from Catholic or Christian or Muslim backgrounds, other backgrounds, I think we would probably have heard similar stories there too, that they found something really specific in Buddhism that they just weren't finding in these other traditions.
0: Yeah, I think there's a long history in Christianity too, especially when you look at the flow of revival movements of people rediscovering these kinds of contemplative or experiential or uh, various other kinds of practices that, that that ground you in the moment, and each of those movements throughout history has has involved some aspect of that that reconnection with those kind of mystical practices uh, that you see in uh, various kinds of religious settings, and and you see that kind of flow back and forth between the institutionalization of things and then the emphasis on on more ecstatic modes of you know, doing the the religion itself. So it, it's definitely not an unusual challenge to face in, in any kind of organized setting. Brian, you look like you have a thought that you're trying to get out.
1: Well, I I mean, I think we've seen this in American Protestantism re- recently. And as we were going through seminary and things like that together, that was a large part of our conversation is how how can we expose people to a more general experience and get them to engage in ways that are going to help them to grow deeper in their tradition, whatever that tradition might be. So when I was taking, you know, classes on worship. It was, except for the preaching courses, they were predominantly about how do you form and shape experiences in general. So I, I think that's a large part of what we're talking about, too. We might use some Christianese and how we talk about it, but I think it's interesting to see that that's something that has been happening across religious traditions and even causing uh, us to have more inter-religious dialogue and practice.
3: Did you learn about kind of this or this emphasis on experiences? Was it on individual experiences or on collective experiences? Like I'm thinking, I think there's some, some sort of a difference, right. Between what people you can you have an experience as congregation or, or as worshipers together versus something that you can do on your own in the morning. night or evening, or right? Like an individual experience.
2: So for me, what pops into my mind is a lot of the work that William James has done around the turn of the century, his work on individual religious experience, that ephemeral thing, uh, really did focus on the individual. I know for worship classes or those spiritual formation classes, sort of like a communal, how do you create a space where a group of individuals can experience these things? But yeah, I think at least Coming from what I've read in the past and coupling your your work as well, William James just like stands out like as like one of those observers seeing this over and over again. Another thing that just kind of crept into my mind was, do you think that there was a link between the Jewish community and the Asian community because of their status in society, sort of on racial lines. And did that make it easier for them to kind of come together and create uh, what evolved into the synergism?
3: I would say that I think the link was less racial and like, meaning it wasn't necessarily Asian Jewish, but was more shared experience of being religious minorities. And I think what the many American Jews have a sense of a, a discomfort with Christianity And, you know, and I think that if the same practice was offered in a, in a Christian setting, they wouldn't go because there's, for all the reasons, for all the historical reasons, right, there's Mm -hmm. back, um, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't feel comfortable to them. But when it's offered, and when it was offered in a, you know, in a Buddhist center, Buddhism is historically neutral. And so, and another religious minority, and I don't think ever, it's it just the power dynamic was different. And so it was more welcoming because it wasn't threatening. And I definitely think that that played into, I'm going to say this both in two ways. One, this, I think that is true. Also, I think that there's a there was a bit of, as there can be, exoticizing of, you know, of an Asian tradition. Asian traditions were, both they were seen as not threatening, but they were seen as kind of romantically other, something different in that way too. And I think there was some of that going on as well.
0: Yeah. And I really appreciated your observations in the book about how many of the importers of Buddhist traditions, especially in the Zen sphere, tended to downplay a lot of the ritual sort of cultural markers in the tradition in order to make it more accessible to Culturally American people, and you, you talked to, in a, a couple of areas about how they did that. One by removing ritual practice, but also by reframing things. You know, I think you mentioned at one point that uh, somebody had rewritten some material to look a little bit more like the creeds that Episcopalians say in their church services, or or something along the, <laughs> those lines. So, you know, I, I definitely appreciated how you know you have a, a group of people who are. Uh, importing a tradition, but doing it in a very savvy and sophisticated kind of way.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's a probably a, an undercurrent of Protestantism that comes through this whole thing of and like how how all this got shaped. Right, it, it's all the backdrop here is American Protestantism. I think that 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 both religious traditions are in some sense reacting to. And when a lot of these Jewish Americans are trying to reinterpret Buddhism for this American audience, Jewish and non Jewish American audience, and they they're doing this with I think this idea of what I think the idea of what religion should look like is still American Protestantism. And they're thinking, okay, if we're going to make Buddhism look more American, it should kind of look more like this, just as the same as Judaism kind of needs to look a little bit more like this, too. And we'll kind of make both of them mirror Protestantism just a bit more.
0: So, can we talk a little bit more about the syncretism then? You know, what can you just give us a, a brief overview of what? we mean when we say religious syncretism and how that plays out in in the setting that you're describing in the book?
3: I actually was like, well, I should figure out the exact definition that I use in the book and just provide it here so I don't don't contradict myself. But in, in the book, I think I say I define it as the mixing of various elements, practices, beliefs, identities, communities associated with different religious traditions, which is an extremely broad definition of what syncretism is. But I, I, I did that intentionally because I think syncretism is really this kind of what in some sense it's an inevitability of kind of a, a mashup of what happens when two cultures two religions meet each other and they begin to mix and then that mixing happens in different levels and in different places it can happen the, at the level of belief at the level of practice kind of a community um, experience at these and the, these are the different kind of threads that I trace is what does that mixing look like and where was that happening and kind of at at what levels. I also, I tried in the book to keep passion out of the observations, right? And to not make a judgment that mixing was good or bad. But in some ways, in my reflections since writing the book and thinking about the world, I do actually think that mixing says something about the context and the groups. Because if the groups are, I think if, I think I'll put it almost differently. I think if you see two groups that live next to each other and there's no mixing between them, that should raise question marks about a lot of things, right? And I think the sign of good group relationships and of trust and of community is actually mixing and learning and in an exchange. And I think in places where you don't see syncretism occurring, that's actually places that, we, that, that there's something happening there, that there's probably some, that there's problems, there's tensions, there's probably injustices, there's things. So, I guess in that respect my retrospective view on this book too is I think it's healthy and I think it's good that there was this mixing. I think it says a good thing about Judaism and Buddhism. I think it says a good better thing about American life and group relationships. So yeah, so I think in healthy in healthy communities and healthy societies, I think we should expect to see that there's that there's a mixing and exchange of practices and ideas, which we certainly saw with Judaism and Buddhism.
2: I think one of the things that I have a lot of interest in pop culture and how that interacts with religion. And I read this book a number of years ago, I think for a seminary course, but it's called Virtual Orientalism. Yeah, All right. I have it in my Kindle list. Uh, Asian Religions and Pop Culture by Jane Naomi Mora And it talks a lot about how the Asian religions uh, were used by pop culture. And they have a lot of dynamics back and forth with the African-American community. But she makes a couple maybe critiques or judgments on on sort of how those religions were used in a sense just for pure entertainment and there was sort of uh, because of that blending there was she thought that it might have been a loss or a breach of trust or something do you see uh, something sort of uh, along the same lines where the mixing has gone a little wrong and it's different to the point where it's harmful
3: yeah, I really appreciate that question. I actually think it's a, a nice, almost critique of what I had just said before, too, because I, I think you're right in some, the sense that I think blending is inevitable. There's a fine line between kind of inevitable uh, change and adaptation and some sort some appropriation, especially appropriation that um, is disempowering to to groups and, and their practices. This I think this was I, I think you're picking up on a tension that I had in, in writing book and thinking it through and thinking like, what, what, what bit of this just feels like the inevitable blending of two cultures and what bit of this feels something like it's a more deliberate appropriation, right. And a a disempowering to one culture or a, I don't know, abuse might be too hard, but like, uh, you know, the, 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 a disenfranchisement of one culture at the expense of another. I think that it was there it's there, it's absolutely Mm -hmm. there. Um, and I think it's just, I think it's kind of hard to, to suss out, like, where's that line? Like, where do we say this, this feels like this is inevitable and beneficial. And where do we say, Oh, this feels yucky. And, and I think part of this is that from the Jewish side, Judaism tends to be a very, can be, there can be very jealous religion and don't like things don't like, wouldn't like their traditions to be taken and um, used by someone who wasn't Jewish or used in a different way than they were intended. But that, Sense of kind of being a bit territorial about practices and jealous about the within Buddhism, there's just not that just isn't there, and that there's a a much larger sense of if this is useful for you and useful in this ways, then you know that that's what we were meant to be. So I I don't know, it's I think, but I think you're picking up on something that's really real and and needs more thought.
1: And I wonder if that's the case due to kind of like different natures of the traditions themselves like there's a highly cultural aspect within Judaism that might make that seem appropriate. Like, so just a note to every, we have lots of pastors who listen, I'm sure. Please stop doing seders. Like, like it's just not appropriate to do that. Like I've had to stop that at churches that I've been at in the past. And I'm just like, that's not appropriate. We shouldn't do that. It's not our story. We just read it. And hopefully we can like, celebrate like god bring people to freedom but it's still not ours but i but i wonder if like buddhism in general being slightly somewhere in both the sphere of religion and the sphere of philosophy like allows that and and this lack of attachment being a central tenet allows them to make that more permissible for them than for maybe other traditions does that make sense
3: I I agree with you entirely. And I think this is what, but I think the question, I think you're hitting it the nail on the head. And just because Buddhism, the tenant is, you know non-attachment and there's more permission to do it. But does that mean, even if you have the permission does that mean it's okay?
1: I'm not sure if it does, but but there's definitely uh, even though we may not be able to know where the lines are directly. If the community says it's not okay for you to use our stuff we know that that's definitely out of bounds like so we know that there is a line somewhere and yes. that's definitely over it exactly
0: yeah. yeah and i think the one of the things we're highlighting here and and we can if we think from a historical point of view you know i think it's important to note that there's a tension in the hebrew bible between syncretic practice and an appropriation and maintaining you know your personal religious identity and and there's there's a a tension and a balance there that you see within the text where there is both a concern with maintaining identity but also you know you have these these imported um wisdom sayings from from egypt and the surrounding region and other areas like that and along with that you know one of the other things i think we're highlighting is that there can be a diversity of opinions within groups and there are i'm i'm sure groups out there that at various points in history have not been terribly interested in sharing yeah buddhism with people who are not from around where they where they came from and you know we we did highlight that that the folks who are importing buddhism into america had were were in some ways a little bit unusual in the ways in which they approach their practice and you know you think about especially san francisco and the stuff that like bruce lee went through when he came over to san francisco and started saying well i'm going to teach uh martial arts to whomever i would like to teach it to and and he got a lot of pushback from some of the uh, members of the community teaching their own traditional martial arts and I think we see that at various levels and layers in in cultures throughout history that that there's always this this push and pull that's going on.
1: So I mean, John, when you mentioned that, like I I think back to the '90s, and probably the first person who brings like Buddhism like onto my radar is actually like Phil Jackson, like who practices Zen and was the coach of like the 90s Chicago Bulls (laughs) and just because they were like a cultural phenomenon in themselves like that kind of like is a part of it but like fills this white guy from Montana like not someone who's who you're like oh that's someone who's going to understand this and there's uh, but it but it brought kind of that onto the into a new place. I'm not going to say it wasn't there already, but it's, you know, just gains more prominence culturally, which then the increases people might increase people's interest at a certain level to engage in interreligious dialogue.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I, I think all of us here, uh, I, I'm, I'm just assuming this about you, you Emily, but I, I think all of us here have probably read some Bernie Glassman and from Sharon Salzberg at some point as well as as part of you know different kinds of uh, reflections on on religious history in, in the American cultural landscape. So <laughs> it's really funny the different places where you where you in, encounter things and where you make new discoveries. it's it's really for me just a, a delightful journey to be on. So Emily, can we talk a little bit about the development of Jewish meditation centers because that that in particular, for me, was a really interesting uh, discussion to talk about in terms of, of spiritual practice and the practicalities around lived spiritual practices and how they tend to exist within the world.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like of all the different pieces of the research that went into into the book, this was my favorite bit. This construction of this new religious practice and tracing its history and then the the results, right, and the effects. So the I think as I mentioned in the 90s when uh, Buddhism became uh, more secularized in American uh, culture, there began this interest among the Jewish community of, of learning some of these new these new techniques, learning Buddhism, learning mindfulness. And it gave rise to this moment. um, And this began in the the early 90s of these Jewish Buddhist dialogues. And these dialogues were um, funded by the, this was also part of the story because it's kind of this fun exercise in tracing like where the money comes from, there was this foundation called the Cummings Foundation. And um, at the time, the president of the Cummings Foundation was a man named Charles Halpern, who himself was a Jew, and he felt very much that Buddhism had a lot to offer to the American Jewish community. And so he, through him and through the foundation, they funded a number of these, they were called in the early 90s, these Jewish Buddhist encounters or dialogues These sorts of exchanges, an exchange of ideas, an exchange of conversations and and with the goal of then producing some path forward for the American Jewish community so that the American Jewish community community could learn from from Buddhism. So these dialogues began in the 90s when there was a bunch of really prominent Buddhist teachers who came and sat with a bunch of um, prominent rabbis, more in the liberal tradition of American Judaism. Um, some of them were on the West Coast, some of them were on the East Coast of various different Buddhist meditation centers. And through these dialogues, they kind of hatched this idea that the Judaism would have a lot to benefit from mindfulness and, and meditation. And they began to craft this: what Jewish meditation might look like, what pieces of Buddhism might get pulled in, and how would that get... You know, kind of wrapped around with Judaism, and how would that how would that get offered? As these ideas got worked out, they also had to think about well, how are we going to teach this to people? Like, how are we going to make how are we going to make this known? This new practice that we're that we're developing, and uh, the Cummings Foundation at the time gave money to start what's called and still exists this Institute for Jewish Spirituality, and then gave money to the Institute for Jewish Spirituality to create a Jewish, I think the earliest. Iteration of this was called a, a Jewish medit. it's now I think the a Jewish mindfulness training seminar. or So I think if, maybe it's, it's earlier, earliest um, version but it might've been a Jewish meditation training practices. And they gave money to the Institute for Jewish spirituality to bring rabbis and cantors and Jewish leaders from across the country to IJS And then they would get trained in Jewish meditation as it kind of got developed through this mixing of these Jewish and Buddhist teachers. And then these rabbis and Jewish leaders would go back to their home congregations and begin to teach it so that the the practice then would kind of would become more diffuse, more known, broader. And I've lost track now, but there's probably been over a dozen of these teacher training programs over the years. And it's had a really profound effect on American Jewish life. I grew up in Akron, Ohio, and, and my home congregation in Akron, Ohio, now has a Jewish meditation class that was taught. The rabbi who went to New York, to the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, who got trained in, in Jewish meditation and Jewish mindfulness, and then went back and is now teaching it. And Jewish meditation and mindfulness has now become this kind of somewhat of a codified practice, which is to say, like, if I went into a Jewish meditation practice in Ohio versus one in, in the South, in South Carolina, or in in Connecticut or in Nevada, it's more or less going to look somewhat the same. There's always a little bit of of changes depending on the teacher and the teacher's background, but the practice itself fundamentally um, centers on a, a, a sit, uh, like a meditation sit. Typically in the Jewish meditation world, there's chairs and cushions. In the Buddhist world, you, you don't see the chairs, but in the Jewish world they say it's not every a cushion's not for everyone. And and there's a sit and and depending on how whether this is a beginner or a more advanced program, the more beginner programs are like a five-minute sit and the more advanced ones are more like a 20 to half hour long sit. And you know, with a meditation that's really focused on breath awareness, which is really quite similar to a meditation sit that would happen in a Buddhist center. But then kind of after that, there would be, there's kind of the Jewish, kind of gets wrapped in this Jewish idiom and Jewish teachings and um, a kind of a Jewish context. There's a conversation then about either the um, the Torah reading for the week or the holidays that are coming up, or oftentimes the teachers will attach the breath awareness exercises to like a recitation of a Hebrew word. Shema is probably the most common one to use. And then there will be other um, sometimes it's like Jewish teachings and Torah story, these sorts of things that kind of also get wrapped in. And then occasionally there'll be another, like the, usually there's like two periods of sitting. And then in between there's some Jewish teachings and Jewish learning and then sitting. And then some sort of an exit and a goodbye and a talk about, you know, what's going on in the Jewish world in the weeks ahead. Is there a holiday coming up? Is there, you know, a communal event or something like this? So it's, and it's produced this this new practice that didn't, didn't exist before, that is kind of this mashup and this blend of, of Judaism and Buddhism. And, you know, for the most part, the Jewish meditation sits all happen in Jewish auspices in either in synagogues and Jewish community centers and Jewish schools or day schools or in in, some place like that. And so also the the aesthetic is really different than if you had to sit in a Buddhist center, whereas in a Buddhist center, you would see, you know, more Buddha imagery. There would be much more likely to be some sort of an altar. Oftentimes there's like more of a, a really kind of clean aesthetic, and and it's an, a kind of an em, sort of an emptiness with like light and stuff, and and within the, the Jewish context, often it 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 looks and feels more. Jewish. I mean, it's the the sit will happen in in the middle of a uh, of a sanctuary space with the Torah right in front of you and with prayer books uh, on your side, and you know it's which makes it feel really different and is really a different practice. So, but this I think maybe comes back to this question too of like, what is this new practice? Is this just a blend? Is this an appropriation? Is this what what is this? But I do know that for the people who participate in it it's very, it's very meaningful to them. This is like a way to kind of find the sense of calmness and wisdom and, and often they would say kindness and all the things that they would find in Buddhism, but to do it within Judaism, within their own community. So... Sorry John that was probably a lot that I just
0: No that was perfect and you know some of my interest in this actually comes from a random encounter I had several years ago with an Atlanta rabbi who was experimenting with uh, his inspiration had come from from kirtan you know the the chanted kind of meditation that you find in, in some Hindu practices but he was experimenting with with liturgies like that but in but in his synagogue and his in his tradition and he was incorporating them into shabbat so it was at the time for me a, a very moving and, and beautiful and meaningful experience that that he led us through and it's been fun for me to see that that this is something that's being incorporated in other areas as well probably before the work that he began so i kind of want (laughs) to go to go check it out and then and go sit for a little bit with some folks but I, i don't know if there's anything near nearby me we're getting close to our typical closing time anyways where we we aim to start to wrap up the conversation so let's just talk a little bit guys you know we try to end on a positive note so what's bringing you joy this week what is getting you through the week at the very least and what is causing you to celebrate?
1: Our mask mandate in Virginia is uh, officially optional as of today. So it will be nice to not have to preach in a mask anymore. Uh, that has been a bane of my week, every week for the last 15 months. So
3: you preach in person right now?
1: In, in my community, we can have uh, worship in person so we're doing hybrid of worship and online. and But this is the first time I don't have to wear a mask. I've already been vaccinated for a long time. Most of my community's already been vaccinated. Nice that there's now like not a mandate to do that. But my folks who want to do that, they can. And I can take it off for 15 minutes, you know, and be good. But today's the day. It's a good day.
2: I guess for me, we're continuing to set up our nursery for the coming of our little one in July. Um, so yesterday I put together her bookshelf with the selection of books already. And today we are rearranging some more furniture and setting up some of the toys and things like that. So
0: we're just really excited.
2: We're in that super
0: nesting phase. What about you, Emily? What's bringing you joy right now?
3: Okay, I'm going to say the silliest thing, but it's supposed to rain here in the Northeast for the weekend Am my... I- Allergies have been really bad. And I'm like, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, the rain, it's going to be a welcome relief. It hasn't rained in a while. And so it'll just hopefully clear out the air. And
1: That is by far not the silliest thing that has ever been said at all. It is pollen season. That is completely understandable.
3: But also the, I would say the warm weather and the vaccinations overall have just infused me with a sense of optimism that I haven't had in a long time. So I'm I'm really hopeful that we've turned a corner, both as a country and hopefully globally as well.
0: Yeah, I'd like to echo that for sure. You know, seeing the vaccination numbers continue to climb, even with some of the anxiety that's been in the news, has been good for me. (laughs) It's been good and uh, helped me to have a little more faith in people than I otherwise may have had over the past year. Yeah, yeah. Emily, I, I really I, I appreciate your surprise at Brian's comment about preaching in person, because in the the South here, you know, a lot of our stuff that we did, the public health measures that were undertaken were largely often voluntary. And it was kind of like, you should probably do this, but we're not going to make you do this at best. <laughs> so, mm. so many of us have been under pressure to be in person with various things over the past year, you know, whether or not we thought it was the best idea or not, yeah. and have been navigating some of that in terms of, of both at the institutional level and at the, the individual or communal levels, local level. So, so that actually brought me a little joy right there that that was a little bit of a surprise.
1: It, no. it really leads me to believe that maybe we've been the crazy ones this whole time like in just like entertaining the conversation <laughs> that we should have done things.
3: Everything has been virtual up here in the Northeast. I, I shouldn't say everything. I'm sure that there's probably been some in person. I just don't know about, but that must've been, this must've been a really hard year.
0: It was at the very least a very interesting year. I know. I think we would have all preferred to have not even, had to worry about having that conversation for many more months than than when we started to have that conversation and started to kind of lay out those guidelines but (laughs) yeah yeah it's been it's been kind of a wild topsy-turvy time and it's really really good to feel like we are on the way out and and back to that what, what was the word we agreed on the other day brian we decided new normal was no good goldfish normal? Is that what we decided on?
1: I think we decided on goldfish normal just because we can't... Well, simply because, you know, the attention span or uh, memory of a goldfish is so short that we really, like, as soon as we think it's normal, it changes again. (laughs) Like...
0: Yeah, we figured that, that new normal becomes normal when the memory fades enough that you start to assume that new normal is normal. Does that make sense? Did I say new and normal too many times and too many combinations?
2: I think he did. You know, I sort of get where you're going. <laughs>
0: So Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find you if they want to look up more of your work?
3: I believe if you if you Google my first name and my last name, Emily Siglo, you'll it'll be led to my webpage, page. just www.emilysiglo.com. And uh, from there, there's there's some links to how to contact me uh, to learn more about the book and the research that went into it.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We had a great time with this conversation today.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure.
0: Thank you guys so much for listening to Logos ish you can do all those things that i ask you to do at the end of every episode if you're still listening including liking subscribing buying books buying emily's book i'm sure she would probably appreciate that so go check us out at all the social media at the website and so on and so forth and have a wonderful week Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logos-ish. This week's music was by audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to Logosishpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Logosishpod. Please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast. That helps us get the word out about all the cool stuff we're working on and we love... Love, love, feedback as well. Have a great week.